But wanted to uh, start on my message today on the kingdom of God. Now we are we are in a series right now in the kingdom. If you don't know. And we're going places. This is, this is exciting because last week I finally got to get to the point that I've been building up to for so long, essentially trying to reconcile how the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. How it's, Jesus said many times, it's present right now, it's fulfilled right now, and it's future. And so last week we got to uh, talk about that a little bit. And, and what I'm excited about is that in, in Mike's opinion is a huge key, and we'll talk more about that, so we're going to elaborate more on that, of understanding the New Testament. And so when you, and I'll elaborate on that today, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but the reason I'm spending so much time on this and going from different angles is because uh, when I got a hold of this myself, it really made things just make a lot more sense. Like, I've mentioned this before that the kingdom of God is really the framework of the whole New Testament and all of the New Testament writers have been influenced by this idea that the kingdom's here but it's also not yet. And so uh, without going into more, I want to, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, just want to say if you haven't been uh, here or haven't been a part of these messages, one thing that's really confusing about the kingdom that a lot of people find confusing, and I just said it, is that Jesus talks about the kingdom both as present and future. And so the question becomes, how do you reconcile that? How can something be both present and future? It's hard to understand. And last week what we did is talked about, tried to answer that through what is called the mystery or the secret of the kingdom. How many of you recognize that language from the parables? And we're going to actually be talking more about the parables today. But essentially, so uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to, re- to listen to that message if you'd like. We have it online, and I-, I have the links up in a couple slides. So you can check it out, because it's, it, the mystery of the kingdom is so crucial for reconciling this future-present idea of the kingdom of God. And what I talked about last week is essentially, th- there's two parts to this so-called mystery of the kingdom. And it's basically two sides of one coin. On the one hand, it's that the kingdom of God, Jesus says in a whole bunch of different ways, is dynamically present now in his own ministry, right? We went through a whole bunch of scriptures that Jesus says that over and over again. The second part of it is that the kingdom is present in weakness, in Jesus himself. And that is what so many people had problems with. Jesus came in a way that was so unexpected, that was so totally, completely, absolutely different than what everybody was expecting. He came as a humble servant, carpenter from Nazareth. If you remember when we talked about the intertestamental period and and the Old Testament, everybody was expecting this cataclysmic inbreaking of the kingdom of God. What they thought was going to happen is that when the kingdom of God came, that was it. That was the end period. Cataclysmic end to everything. All of God's enemies gone, brand new start, signs, wonders, just like, you know, uh, the book of Exodus with the plagues, like to the max, right? Just ending everything, God judging all of his enemies, kingdom coming, spirit coming back, Messiah coming overtaking all of their enemies, which at that time was Rome. So they're expecting all these major cataclysmic things, and Jesus comes as a humble, suffering servant. And to this day, that's what people have issues with. In fact, someday I want to talk about the book of Corinthians. That was their big problem with Paul the Apostle. That he came in weakness. And he had to remind them, look, you guys are thinking of this from human standards. Look at our Look at Jesus. You just read 1 Corinthians, actually, the whole book, but especially the first chapter. Paul's like, look, the, the philosophers, the Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. The Jews are looking for a sign, like I just said, this cataclysmic end. Jesus came and suffered on a cross. The foolishness, right? That's a stumbling block. To both of them, because it's so foolish according to this age, according to human standards of wisdom. The wisdom of God is the cross of Christ. Suffering, humility, 
you know, and it's just so contrary to what you would think it is. It's so contrary, and that's how Paul came to them. And they had a problem with that because Corinthians were triumphalists. They're like, oh, everything is now, you know, we're, we're living it all now. And Paul has, is coming to us with weakness. He's not very good at preaching. And there's all these other amazing people who are good at preaching. And, you know, he doesn't even speak in tongues. And then Paul comes back later and says, actually, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> but I'm not doing it to show you I'm so spiritual Right? It, it, he just had to re kind of uh, make them rethink what wisdom is, what the wisdom of God is, and it's the cross. And that, like, so what my whole point is even at the early church, they had this, they had a problem with this second part that it's present in weakness, humility, totally different than what we would think according to human standards. Okay? And so anyway, if you want to hear more on that, what I talked about last time, there's the links. But I want to move on, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to sort of give a little bit of a refresher, but also come at this from a different angle, because I really, really want us to be, to, to grasp this already not yet idea, because it's so important for the New Testament and for understanding Jesus. So this... You think about the New Testament, you think about the book of Matthew, what, you know, the very first verse in the New Testament, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that important? Because it's asserting this continuity with the promise that was given to David, that was given to Abraham. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, for thousands of years, for hundreds of years. So Jesus can only be understood as the Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, who is the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment, okay? And it's this fulfillment of what was promised that is so crucial to understanding the whole New Testament. So this is also, we've talked about this a little bit, but just to refresh our memory, this is the crucial matter in Jesus' own announcement that time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Right? Remember, these are primary temporal terms. In other words, we're talking about uh, rule, not reign. We're talking about uh, time, not a geographical location. Okay? Reign versus realm. We're not talking about realm. We're talking about a time when God would come and sovereignly rule over the matters of humankind. The time of the end. Okay? And I, I, I'm using this word a lot because um, it just simplifies what I'm trying to say. The word eschatology, and for those of you who don't know, because I'm going to be using it a lot today, the kingdom of God is essentially an eschatological term. What does that mean? It simply means having to do with the time of the end. Okay, so the word eschaton in Greek is translated as end, the end. Okay, so when I, when I say the word eschatology, you know, we're just talking about the end, okay, the end of time. Now, the best way to understand the New Testament theology in terms of the New Testament writers is that they had to dramatically, they had to really alter their uh, eschatology when Jesus came, okay? So this altered eschatological perspective is so important for us to grasp. And that's what I'm talking about today. And I'm going to be talking about it for a while. Because when I show you this and I sh uh, start going into this with other New Testament writers, you're going to see what I mean. Now, like Paul, for instance, he uses different language, but he's, you'll see he comes from this perspective. Okay? So Jesus himself and all those who followed him believed that his mission marked the fulfillment of this eschatological promise made by the prophets and modified by the Apocalyptus. Now, um, if you didn't hear the first two messages of this series, we talk all about that. I went through, if you remember, the Old Testament, their end times beliefs about the latter days, and then during the intertestamental period, that changed. So that the apocalyptic writers, the time between Malachi and John the Baptist, for 400 years, really changed the way people thought of the end times, and they took what was believed in the Old Testament that it's going to happen within history and said, no, it's not going to happen in history. It's going to be the end of history. And something really major is going to happen. It's going to be the end. And then the time of the kingdom of God, God's rule is going to come. Okay? That had to change because it did not come like that. It did. So they had to really, 
That's why a lot of people had problems with Jesus. We already talked about this. But he came in such a way that was so contrary to their expectations that they're like, what is this? Is this real? Like, I mean, we're expecting, we had these expectations of like essentially the, the book of Revelation, right? Like wrath, bulls of wrath, all this stuff for God, upon God's enemies, judgment. And this humble servant uh, carpenter from Nazareth is coming and saying this is good news? They just couldn't, even John the Baptist just couldn't wrap his mind around this. He's like, wait a minute, we're looking for bad news. The, ju- the judgment's coming, the wrath of God. You remember John the Baptist, essentially the bad news. And Jesus is like, no, you have it all wrong. It's the good news of the kingdom. Okay, so they, it just, they just had to really like, oh my goodness, like totally different than what they were expecting. Now, this, this altered perception begins with the mission and message of Jesus, and we talked about how it's especially his proclamation of the kingdom of God, okay? So although he announced his final consummation, if you remember, we talked about all of these future, future, future words that Jesus talks about in the kingdom of God, the not yet, he also, the radical thing is that he announced the kingdom was already present with him. That's the thing that was so hard to grasp, like, wait. Okay, like how is it present with you when we're expecting all these things? And according to our expectations, you're not fulfilling them like we thought you would. Okay, so that was the radical thing that they really had to shift in their perception of the end. Okay, so this is so radical is that the kingdom of God, the future that was expected to come with great power and wonders, uh, the cataclysmic end that it came in weakness and humility. With Jesus, he hung out with sinners, with outcasts, with the poor, with the rich, right? He served everyone. He loved his enemies. Wait, you love your enemies? Jesus, um, the, the Bible says that God's going to destroy his enemies in the end. What, love our enemies? Right? Like, what's this about? Love Rome? The Romans who are occupying us? No, you're supposed to bash their heads in. What do you mean love them, right? It, it, like just not even close to what they were expecting. And that required a radical shift, radical. So people were looking for the wrong thing in the wrong direction, okay? And it's in Jesus that the powerful kingdom of the future is already at work in the world. And that's part of the mystery and the secret of the kingdom, if you remember, that it's already present in Jesus. Where the king is, the kingdom is, and the king is here, and the kingdom's now. The rule of God is now. Okay, but the kingdom in Jesus' teaching came in veiled power, right? Like I said, he was casting out demons, healing the sick, and all that great stuff, but he sure wasn't overtaking Rome like they thought he was going to be. So, so Jesus, you know, they're all like, even John the Baptist, are you the coming one? Because the Romans have me in prison right now. I thought you were supposed to overtake them and, you know, like free the captives. Jesus is like, no, you got it all wrong. And then he goes ahead and quotes Isaiah 61, right? Go tell John that the heal, uh, the blind see, the lame walk, people are getting healed, and the, the good news is being proclaimed to the, the poor. So actually, I am fulfilling. You're just seeing it all wrong. I'm actually fulfilling that very promise you're using to think that I'm supposed to do something that I'm not going to do. So with Jesus' understanding of his own ministry, we have, like I said, the essential eschatological framework of the whole New Testament. This is such an important framework that helps us understand a lot of mysterious scriptures even that Paul talks about. And I was so tempted today to go into that, but I'm like, no, I got to do that another day. I'm going to focus on uh, mostly Jesus today because we're still talking about his mission and message. But at some point, I really want to talk using this framework. So when we have a good grasp of it, when we start talking about Paul and, you know, how he sees things and how we're supposed to live in light of this. Okay, so for Jesus, the kingdom is clearly both already, not yet. It's already here, not completely here. It's still future, present and future. So what happened is Jesus, when he came, he set the future in motion. The coming age dawned, but we're still waiting the consummation at his second coming, the final consummation. So because of this, there's this radical shift of this diagram I showed you previously. I'm going to show it to you again. So this age and the age to come, you'll recognize that language, is now we're dealing with an eschaton, remember the end, that's a long period of time, way longer than they're expecting. Way longer. Like, come on, it's what, 2,000 years later, we're still in it. 
There, you know, so the latter days became the last days, and we're in those last days right now, the already not yet. So we're dealing with the fact that the kingdom's begun and is to be consummated in the future. Now, if you remember, what this diagram's showing is that the apocalyptic writers had this idea, they called it this age, and we're living in this age, and it's evil, and there's demonic oppression, and there's sickness, and he, they called it Satan's age, right? Because there's injustice everywhere, and, and sin, and, and clearly this is an evil age. This age is evil, it's Satan's age, and what's going to happen is God's going to come and end this crazy demonic age and bring in the age to come, which is the kingdom of God. Right? And they, took, they called it at that point the time of the quenched spirit. What's going to happen? The spirit's going to come back. The Messiah is going to come overtake our enemies and usher in this new age. And I've said this before, the new age movement stole that from us. That's actually a biblical term, the new age, the eon. So what happened is this <laughs> shift. This is what I'm talking about. From that, okay, evil age cataclysmic thing, then the kingdom of God, to this. Essentially, this is a simplified thing, but, but you'll see, at the fall, Satan came, sin entered in, and then we get this promise of redemption. So the whole Old Testament is looking forward to the kingdom of God, essentially. The Messiah coming, redeeming his people, restoring us to what we had in the garden before the fall. Then what happened is the first coming of Christ, the kingdom of God actually came. In a way that wasn't expected, but it came with Jesus, okay? And he ushered in the age to come. It looked different, but he ushered. Now, he did come with the Spirit, and that was the one sign to them, if you remember, that the, of the kingdom of God, that the evidence that it's here. You'll see that throughout the whole New Testament. They use that as the evidence. Okay, the new covenant's here. The kingdom of God is here. But we're still in this crazy evil age, right? Sin is still here. Um, it's, it, the kingdom of darkness, there's still demonic oppression, and right? And so it was just different than what they thought. Like, not even close. Now, you'll recognize this language, for instance, the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, 12, at the end of the prayer in Colossians, where uh, Paul says, and we joyfully give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the kingdom of light. For what? He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In other words, we're already living in the coming age. We are to live as future eschatological people now in the present. Okay? It might sound weird, but it's true. We're already seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. Paul says to walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of your flesh. This age, that's, Paul's using that language, the flesh is a term for this present evil age. We'll talk about that more in the future, but that term in the apocalyptic uh, period became known as the evil age, the flesh, the time of the flesh. Paul's like, hey, you crucified your flesh, now you're supposed to live in the age of the Spirit. That's why walk by the Spirit, then you won't gratify the desires of the flesh of this present evil age, right? You're supposed to live by the Spirit, the age to come. So, you have this, now we're in the last days. So, you remember in the Old Testament, it's called it the latter days. Now we're the last days, the already not yet. We're in like the in-between time. It's, it's wild. We're, it's like this radical middle in-between time. Uh, we gave the analogy last time of, of D-Day and V-Day, if you remember World War II. When Jesus came, that was the D-Day decisive battle of the age. Satan was defeated when Jesus came. But if you, if you remember, there was still 11 months. That was the decisive battle in Norm at Normandy in the World War II. There was 11 months before the actual victory day. So from June 6, 1944 to May 8, 1945, there was a mopping up operation. The war was uh, uh, won on D-Day. Everyone knew it. There's no question. But there was still a lot of battles. More Americans died in that 11 months than any other period of time in the war. But everyone knew V-Day is just a matter of time. Not if, when. Okay. We are in that period of 11 months, so to speak. 
We are part, Jesus calls us to be part of the mopping up operation, if you will. The enemy's already defeated the cross. That was the battle of Normandy, so to speak. That was the, de- the decisive battle of the ages. We're still, we're part of the army of God. We're still in the battle. There's suffering. Trisha talked about that last week. There's death. But the difference is we win. We win and we know it. And that's been determined by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're still in this awkward time period. Of, and we're supposed to live from heaven to earth. That's what, the whole Sermon on the Mount, even. Jesus like, has all these huge, it seems like high standards that seem impossible. It's because he's saying, hey, this is how people in heaven live. This is what you're supposed to live like. Your kingdom come, right? Heaven come to earth. This is what people in heaven look like. So be perfect like that by the spirit, not a law, spirit. Seek first his kingdom, righteousness, all these things will be added to you. It's all about the kingdom. Living from the future to the present. In the present evil age, I mean. So the end's dawn, the decisive battle of the holy wars now engaged. In his casting out of demons, he beheld the fall of Satan. God's stronger man's dealt the enemy the decisive crippling blow, but he did it through weakness and suffering. Not through the kind of glory and power that we would probably expect of God. He did it in weakness, he did it in suffering. The suffering servant Messiah. Now, the future's already entered the present age. Okay? So God's already triumphed. He's already secured our life. And what he's asking us to do is live the life of the future in the present. Live from heaven to earth. We are God's eschatological people, and we need to live that way in the present times. We need to show people what heaven is like. That's what we're called to do. It's pretty wild, but it's true. People are supposed to see us and be like, wow, I want what they have, because they're living like heaven on earth now. Right? So we need to show the world what heaven's like, and that's what God's called us to do, to walk by the Spirit. As we do the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God's produced in us so that we can reflect his image to the world. So we live between the times, living out the future that's to come, but living it in the present age. Now, I already said this. But I'm going to just give you a few examples of the teachings of Jesus. This is the basic framework of the entire New Testament. You'll see this over and over and over again, this already not yet framework. But it's, the important thing is it stems from Jesus himself. That's what I'm saying. It was because of his message and mission and everything he did and said that shifted everyone's perspective and had to try and reconcile that present future thing. And because of that, it influenced all the New Testament writers. You see this all thread throughout the whole New Testament. It's the one thing that holds it together, essentially, is this, these ideas. Well, not the one thing, but one of the things, the framework. So, but in Jesus' teaching, here's just a few examples. For instance, his understanding of his messiahship of his servant king, lion and lamb, come from and is understood in the context of already not yet, the radical middle, right? Like you look at the book of Revelation, it's like, hey, look at the, behold, the lion of Judah. And John's like, I looked and there was a slain lamb, the lion and the lamb. So Jesus came as a lamb, but he's a lion. Don't, Don't get him wrong, right? That represents the already not yet, okay? He's going to come back as the lion, and he is right now in heaven, but he came as a lamb. Also the idea of servant king. The other thing is the Lord's table. As the inaugurated messianic banquet, we talked about this before. But we are already sitting at the great feast, the wedding supper of the lamb. Okay? We're celebrating the reality that the king's invited us to sit at his table. If you remember, we talked about that. Every single gospel in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus said that essentially this is an eschatological meal. I'm not going to eat this meal with you again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, but it's inaugurated now. So he actually inaugurated the Lord's table as a feast because the ultimate fulfillment is the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see this over and over again in the parables in the book of Revelation. So when we get together, we're celebrating the fact that we are guests at the feast. And we're uh, in his presence now, sitting at his table, feasting. But we do so in the already, knowing that we come with our own brokenness and in our own need continually to experience grace and be restored. The already, not yet. The, the other thing 
And this is, and I'm going to elaborate on this more in the future because it's so important. And I already kind of talked about it. It's Christian ethics. This changes everything. Okay? So God's people are determined not by the present evil age, but by the realities of the coming kingdom. We're to live the life of the future and the present. And I'm saying that a whole bunch of times, so hopefully that will remember it. We're supposed to live the life of the future now. Okay, so what, that's what Jesus is all about. Okay, bringing the future now into the present, marking our lives, stamping us with eternity, and identifying us forever as his own now. But in the present context of living that out, living the values, the life of the future now, already not yet, like I said, Sermon on the Mount, we're supposed to live the values in the life of the future now and show people what heaven's like, because we already are in the kingdom of heaven. We're children of the kingdom through Christ. Now, it would be a miss. It would be a, a tragedy, I'm exaggerating, but for me not to even talk about the parables in this, in this series. And today what I wanted to show you in light of this, in light of this framework, showing you now some parables of the kingdom that you'll see this is what Je- the, some of the realities Jesus is talking about in his parables. Because um, he says, these, when his dis- I'm getting ahead of myself, but when his di- disciples ask him, hey, why do you always speak in parables? He says, because the secret or the mystery of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. So in other words, the mystery, the secret of the kingdom is inherent in the parables. Jesus uses so many parables to talk about the realities of the kingdom, it's not even funny. Most uh, uh, parts of his ministry you can see in one parable or another. Now you could do a whole series on the parables. So what I wanted to do is at least show you, go through a few parables from Matthew chapter 13. Because if you look at Matthew chapter 13, almost the entire chapter is about parables on the kingdom. He uses these parables to to, um, introduce people to the reality of the kingdom. Okay? So, although the parables function in a variety of ways, most of them are vehicles of the message of the kingdom. Okay? Not just in this chapter. You look throughout the, the Gospels. Most of them are trying to help people understand and grasp truths about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Or he'll give stories, right? We, we talked about the story of the feast, the great feast, when that guy shouts out, hey, blessed are those who are invited to the kingdom of, or the feast. And Jesus gives them this whole story to illustrate the point, hey, the people who think they're going to be invited aren't, and the people who aren't are going to be. The first will be last, the last will be first. The point is, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is trying to illustrate truths about the kingdom in these parables. Okay, So they're full of the mystery of the kingdom. Remember, the mystery of the kingdom, two parts. That it's present in Jesus in weakness, but that it'll be consummated by God in his own time. The already and not yet are all throughout the parables, and we'll see that in a minute. So the parables are invitations to respond to Jesus and the kingdom. They're invitations. Okay, So even when he's illustrating some elements or aspects of the kingdom, they're ultimately a call for Jesus' ministry, to respond to his ministry, okay? They're invitations to people. This is what the kingdom's like, and you can respond based on what I just told you. So there's, they, the, the interesting thing is, and you'll see this throughout the parables, there's simultaneously offers of grace and mercy, and at the same time, threats of judgment, depending on where one sits, depending on how one responds to the parables, okay? So, and, and how one hears them. That's why Jesus says, take heed how you hear, Right? Whoever has ears, let them hear. Because this is a decisive moment. Based on what I just said in this parable, you have to make a decision now. Because there's truths about the kingdom in in this, and and you have to respond right. So, when they're faced with the hearing of these words, you can't be neutral. Okay? Either about Jesus or about the kingdom of God. That is a typo. I should say God. (laughs) It says God. (laughs) and in the end in their own way they demand a response to the real question who then is this who then is jesus of nazareth is he really the messiah so what i want to do is is just go through a few of these parables to illustrate different truths about the mystery of the kingdom of god and you'll recognize these parables but i want you to try and see these through the light of what we talked about about the mystery of the kingdom so the first one i want to do is 
the parable of the sower. Okay? Now, we all know this, and I, and I was debating whether or not to, there's a lot of text, so you can ignore that if you want to just listen to me, but I thought some people like reading and listening at the same time. So for, for those of you, go for it. If not, you can just listen. So this is Matthew, just verse 3 through 9. When he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what's sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff after this that I'm not going to go into, but I do want to show you this to highlight what Jesus says about this parable. So in verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to people in parables? Right? This enigmatic speech that's so hard to understand, these puzzles. Why do you talk like this? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they'll be having abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So I'm going to fast forward to verse 18, because Jesus interprets the parable. And this is an important parable. I'll talk about that in a minute. So listen to what the parable of the sower means. When one hears the message of the kingdom, that's what this parable is all about. This is why it's so important to understand the kingdom of heaven. It's all, right? It's, about, it's all throughout the teachings of Jesus. Okay, so this is a truth about the kingdom. When someone hears this message of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away from what was sown in their heart. This is the seed along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word, right, the message of the kingdom, and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life. Now, what I want to say here, that word life is actually the word this age, the present age. Talking about this age and the age to come. Now, most translations say this life, so it makes more sense, but the word is eon, and that means this age. Okay, so getting caught up with the present evil age, the way things are going now, is what chokes the word and and the deceitfulness of wealth, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what's sown. Okay. So this parable is rightfully recognized as the key to the rest. In fact, in Mark's version, in Mark 4, 13, he says, do you not understand this parable? Because they asked him, what does this mean? And then he says, how then are you going to understand any parable if you don't understand this one? So it's a huge key to understanding the rest of the parables, the message of the kingdom. Okay, so the word of the kingdom is now being sown by Jesus himself. He's the sower. Okay, so the message of the good news of the kingdom is being announced, and that's what Jesus is all about, the good news, the good news of the kingdom. How are you going to respond to it? The parable declares the presentness of the kingdom, and that's important. The kingdom is here already, right now. How are you going to respond to that? And what he says is there's a call for discipleship and perseverance, indicating that the consummation is not immediate. It's not yet. Okay, because if you remember, two of the soils, people received the message and understood it, but fell away. Okay, either because of persecution or because of the worries of this age. So it's a call to perseverance and discipleship. It's an invitation. How are you going to respond to this now? And are you going to persevere? Because the consummation of the kingdom is not yet. It's already here, not yet. And you have to persevere in this in-between time. Okay, so the present moment's full of opportunity to hear the good news and to let it spring to life, the good soil. But there's also an inherent warning. Remember, these two sides of the parables. There's this inherent warning, if you don't let it spring to life, the devil will snatch it away. Right, so we have, a, we have to have a right heart posture in order to receive the message of the kingdom because it came in humility, it came in a way people weren't expecting. Are you going to have the heart posture that receives it or not? 
The interesting thing is if you look at Matthew 13, it, it has all these parables. And at the very end, it says, after Jesus said these parables, he went into his hometown, preached to them, and they're like, who's this guy who got all this wisdom? And how can he do miracles? This is Joseph's son. We know this guy. And they were offended, he says. So in other words, they got the word of the kingdom snatched from them. It's a picture of this very thing. And then it said Jesus could do little miracles because of their lack of faith. Because the enemy took the message of the kingdom because he came in a way they weren't expecting. The mustard seed. And they couldn't receive it. So. Remember, again, the invitation and warning. Same, uh, there's both in these parables. And I'm going to skip to the next slide, Jennifer. So this message of the kingdom is the joy of forgiveness, but it carries the demand of discipleship, right? You have to persevere. You have to, and depending how you respond, there's going to be 30, 60, or 100-fold return of the kingdom, okay? So most parables have these basic elements at work, the warning and threat, which is also an invitation, and the good news. And there's an element of discipleship. And you're going to see that in the next parable, this element of warning and invitation. Now, if you want to hear more on this parable, uh, in 2015, I gave a whole message almost on this. It was called Humility, the Key to Understanding Truth. And I go way more detail in that parable we just went through. And so if you want, that's, you can get the message from these links here or on iTunes or our website. The parable of the weeds. This is the very next parable. Okay, so Matthew 24 to 30, Jesus told him another parable, the kingdom of heaven, it's a simile, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed into the field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling them up the weeds, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, during the overlapping of the ages. You see that? During this time, there is the present evil age and there's the age to come, and we have to live as kingdom people now. Sometimes they're hard to distinguish, though. But because there's still the present evil age, along with the age to come happening now, you have to let them grow together till the consummation, till the end. You'll see that when he, when he um, interprets this parable. So at that time, the not yet, the consummation, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burnt, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now I'm going to fast forward because he interprets this in verse 36. The disciples ask him, okay, what's the interpretation of that? Then he left the crowd and went to the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the seed is the son of man. The kingdom's here, right? The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom already in the present age. Us, right? Assuming we're all saved by grace. Us, the children of the kingdom in this present evil age. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of this age, the not yet, the age to come. And the harvesters are the angels. So you see implicit in this parable is this age and the age to come and, and him explaining, look, you're going to, the people of the kingdom, it's already here, but you're going to still have to live in the midst of this present evil age and with the enemies, the people of, of the enemy who aren't saved until the consummation, the overlapping of ages. As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age, the not yet. The Son of Man will send out his angels and the weed out of his kingdom. That's the already kingdom, right? How can they be weeded out of his kingdom? Because the kingdom is present in this current evil age. So there's still evil happening. At the same time, there's the kingdom of light. And that's not going to get taken care of till the final consummation, the second coming of Christ. The not yet. So... Everything that causes sin and all who do evil, they'll both be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, the not yet, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom. 
wait, I thought the kingdom's already here, right? But he's saying, yeah, there's, there's the, not the fullness, though. The kingdom of their father, whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus is essentially illustrating the truth that the kingdom's present, but we still have to live in this current evil age until the final consummation of what was inaugurated. Now, if you want to hear more on the parable of the weeds, I got two messages, overcoming the religious spirit, overcoming the political spirit, that I talked way back in 2015. Again, if you're interested, go for it. The mustard seed. Okay, remember, we're talking about the mystery of the kingdom, the two sides of the coin, and the leaven. Okay, so this is Matthew 31 and 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though in the smallest of seeds, right, the already present in, the we- in weakness, yet when it grows, the not yet or the consummation, it's the largest of garden plants. Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about the way the kingdom, the way the kingdom is here now is like a mustard seed. But the final end is like a huge garden tree. That's what they were expecting it to look like up front, but he's like, no, it's a seed right now, okay? And it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch on its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took mixed about into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the whole dough. Okay, so these are twin parables. These two go together and they're making the same point. What they're saying is this isn't about growth or progress, It's about contrast, okay? It's the sharp contrast between the beginning of the kingdom and the end, which is the final glorious second coming of Christ, consummation. So there should be a sense of wonder at Jesus and the kingdom, like that between the smallest of seeds and the largest of herbs. You see that? Now already, not yet. So these are all about the kingdom and about Jesus, right? How different the messianic age with its beginnings in Jesus from what they expected. Totally different, right? What are you talking about, Jesus? These outcasts, these fishermen, these tax collectors, this is the messianic community? Right? These are the wedding guests? How absurd is this? Just as absurd as the smallest of garden seeds growing into the largest of garden plants. It's the same. That's how absurd it is. So, the point is contrast. And the word, is a, this is a word of unwavering assurance that in Jesus, God's hour really had begun. Okay? And that God will carry it through to completion. That's the point. He's gonna, it's going to happen. Now, all that's necessary is we have to believe the good news and take this seriously despite of the outward appearance of weakness and humility. We have to put our faith in the mustard seed, the not yet, right? The already and how it came in such a way that we weren't expecting. It's a call to faith and discipleship. Now, when I was uh, on Facebook this week, I saw this funny meme here. I have a mustard seed and I'm not afraid to use it. That's how we're supposed to be right now in the kingdom, mustard seed. So that, now the thing is, that's part of the difficulty, isn't it, right? This is the good news of the kingdom. This is it, a mustard seed, something that looks like nothing, is the good news. And we're called to faith in this absurd idea, essentially, right? That's what Paul calls it, foolishness. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, in 1 Corinthians 1.18 uh, through 22. So, so we have to trust that this mustard seed is going to grow into the largest of garden herbs. And we have to throw our life away and trust that Jesus is really God's word. That's the call to faith. That's the call to discipleship. Faith in the mustard seed, in the weakness, the way the kingdom came. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Remember, we're talking about the, the truths of the kingdom here. So this is Matthew 13, 44 to 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden. And that's a key there. It's hidden. It's hard to see, right? Because of our expectation. It's hard to see, but it's there. It's like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, When he found one of a great value, went away and sold everything he had and bought it. 
So these are saying the kingdom is of ultimate concern. It's of great worth, but it requires resolute action. This is a call to discipleship and giving up your life. But it's, it's a life, it's a great exchange because you give up your life and you get unspeakable joy. Okay, so even though the kingdom is hidden now, it's of great value and therefore worth selling all, like losing your life to find it. But the emphasis is on the joy of the discovery, right? Surprised by joy, that's what it says. God's rule, his kingdom, is his gift. To be in the kingdom is joy unspeakable and full of glory. But it's hidden. It's like a mystery. But when you find it, it's worth selling everything for it. It's worth selling everything for this mustard seed that looks like nothing right now. But when it grows, it's going to be amazing. But last but not least, the parable of the net. Matthew 47 to 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Look, all throughout the already not yet. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the burning furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then this is how Jesus concludes. Have you understood all these things? The already not yet, the fact that the kingdoms come in weakness in a way you weren't expecting. And that's what you have to put your faith in. Yeah, they replied. Then he says to them, therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom already is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The call to discipleship. You see all these elements in the one we just read too. It's a warning, but it's an invitation, the good and the bad fish. It's a call to discipleship. It's illustrating the good news, but it's illustrating that you have to put faith in the mustard seed. All of these truths about the mystery of the kingdom wrapped into these parables because they had such a hard time grasping that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all these promises that they had totally misinterpreted as something that it was, wasn't, and it wasn't going to be until the final consummation. So just to summarize, the parables and Jesus. The parables are primary vehicles for confronting people with the kingdom of God. That was G- the way Jesus did it. And, he, and you had to make a decision. You, you have to sympathize. Jesus forced on Israel... That he was it. Contrary to the expectations, he's it. Now, are they going to believe it, even though he was, came in a way that they totally weren't expecting or not? Confronting them. Then this is the way he did it, with parables. Everyone heard it. Here's an invitation, but a warning if you don't. They set out the good news and also express God's own character. They are offers of mercy, but also function as a threat and warning. They tell us that the kingdom is to be prized above all else. That discipleship means selling all and becoming like the God of the parables. They tell us a lot about Jesus himself, right? All this is happening in Jesus of Nazareth, and it's through him that God is bringing grace and judgment. Right now is the day of salvation, the time of mercy. But there's a final consummation, and that's the point of no return. You're either in or out. Let's just pray that that everybody is in and that we spread the good news of the kingdoms to give people the opportunity to enter the kingdom right now in this present age. So the crucial points to us that I want us to take away from this is that the kingdom of God often comes in a way we don't expect and we must not reject it when it comes. He does the same today as he did back then. I mean, Catch the Fire is a perfect example of this. 1994, came in a way no one was expecting. Everyone had their neat conceptualizations of what revival is. I'll show you what revival is. Bam! Crazy manifestations, people laughing, totally not expected. Just like how Jesus came, right? And are you going to embrace the way I'm coming or not? Because that's how I come and that's how I chose to come. Right? And that's important for us that we don't reject however he decides to come with the kingdom in the future. Important for us to always, always, always keep this in mind. He comes in ways we don't expect. 
And we can't think we have it all figured out. Because you know who had it all figured out were the Pharisees, the religious folk of his day. And they're the ones who rejected him. Okay? So a very important takeaway message of the kingdom is that it comes in a way it doesn't, we don't expect it. The second, and I've said this, is that Christians were called to be living the life of the future in the present age now. And that is so important. And you're going to see that when we develop that more in the future. Okay, so we'll talk about that more in the future. But right now I want to pray for us. That we would be people of the kingdom, living the future in the present. Okay, and what that means. Because grasping this, wait a minute, we are supposed to be living the life of heaven now? Is a big deal. So I just want to pray for us. Father, we just thank you so much for your kingdom. We thank you for your revelation that you are present now and that you come in ways that are mysterious and unfathomable, but that you give us an invitation and an opportunity to enter in to whatever it is you're doing. And so, Lord, we just ask that we'd be people who would fully embrace your kingdom that we'd be people who would have the hundredfold return, that we would have a humble posture of heart that no matter what it looks like, that we'll fully embrace it and, and illustrate it in our own lives to other people. So that when people see us, they'll be like, man, that's what heaven's like, and I want that now. Help us to live as an eschatological people in this present evil age. Help us to live the future now, the life of the Spirit now. Help us to walk by the Spirit. Help us to live the Sermon on the Mount. Help us to be kingdom people that people would look at us and be like, man, I want what they have. Lord, give us that revelation of what it is to be a presence-driven life, a people who are unto your name by your Spirit, that we'd be fully embraced whatever it looks like that your Spirit wants to do in our midst. Help us to embrace your kingdom now. Help us to be extravagant worshipers of you. Lord, I just thank you for your teaching. I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for how it's already here and that we can live that future life now, that we can have the powers of the age to come according to Hebrews 6, verse 2, that we can experience that now. I ask, Lord, that we would all experience it in extravagant ways and that as we receive the message of your kingdom, that, you, that in the right way that we would produce that harvest of a hundredfold. So, Lord, I just ask that you come, bless everyone now with healing, with your presence, with breakthrough in every way. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in this church as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what we want to do is, uh, if you want, we're, we have hospitality, a time of fellowship and